Happy New Now, one and all. Welcome back to Cafe Penumbra, your cyber cafe where we exchange ideas about current events, hot topics, storytelling, plus all the things. Please do visit us and interact on our sister platform, the Cafe Penumbra Discord server. See the link in the show notes or at seraphimpenumbra.com. Today, I'd like to begin with a question from a listener, I think partly in response to the I Am Other episode and also partly from the discussion last time about my doctor visit. And they did ask to not be identified, and that's perfectly fine. They write, and I quote, Thinking about gender and gender construct, our society is particularly binary. Why? Where does it come from and where did it start? There are cultures that have recognized more than two genders, such as some Native Americans who recognized two-spirited people long before it became spoken about in westernized culture. Some languages, such as French and Spanish, assign gender to words and objects. Why? First, those are great questions, and I thank you for writing in with them. I wanted to take a quick moment to reference, this is, this is what we have intended all along, was exactly this, to continue previous conversations, you know, as part of, you know, the current episode. And this is what I mean at the end when I sign off and I say, let's keep the conversation alive. So I do want to just thank you for writing in. And of course, those of you familiar with my work know that this is kind of a pet topic for me in general. I think about these things as well, as I'm sure at least some of you do also. I remember thinking as a young person who constantly had to defend every choice I made, especially if it seemed to threaten the perception of my being a boy. And I'm sure you've all heard by now how that turned out. But I remember thinking in Egyptian culture, I was obsessed with Egyptians. Men were every bit, if not more likely, to adorn themselves with gold jewelry and headdresses and that distinctive eyeliner, the robes. Yet none of these things were perceived as intrinsically masculine or feminine. They were just what people wore. And I remember noticing in the animal kingdom, we saw that female birds are more likely to have muted coloring, while their male counterparts typically enjoy the more bright plumage. I knew that... Indigenous American cultures held space for two-spirit people. The hijra, a non-binary gender uh, identity recognized in India today, are found in religious texts throughout South Asian history. Indonesia has an ethnic group that has three different genders beyond the binary. The Sekrata is a non-binary gender recognized by an indigenous people of Madagascar. So this... While we may be seeing more inclusion in some places, most Americans view it as a new thing, but that's only because it may be new to their awareness. I immediately think of Alok Ved Milan, the author of Beyond the Gender Binary, who is just so amazingly intelligent and articulate. Uh, I follow them on Instagram, and it just inspires me. I saw them speak to exactly where did the gender binary come from in one of their Instagram reels. And I did scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll to try to find that exact post. And I was unable to, they are prolific in their content. I did stumble across this little nugget that I wanted to share. I'm non-binary, which means it's not just that I'm challenging the binary between male, female, man, woman, but between us and them, they said. And in your statement, you said, why don't I help them? As if this struggle is not your struggle too. 
the reason people don't fight for me is because you're not fighting for yourself fully. Any movement that's trying to emancipate men from the shackles of heteropatriarchy or emancipate women from the traditional gender ideology has to have trans and non-binary people at the forefront because we are actually the most honest. We're tracing the root. Where do these ideas of manhood and, and womanhood come from? They come from a binary structure. So I did then head over to sparkandco.co.uk who are noted for vetted and verified resources. And in an article that speaks to the question, it seems that the advent of colonization was where we see European colonization, which forced Western ideals onto indigenous people. Under the constraints of the gender binary, it instills the idea that assigned sex at birth also defines your gender. And of course, we see how this binary impacts us daily from imposed gender roles to the denial of trans and intersex people's rights. Prior to colonization, lots of women, third gender and gender fluid people in Global South were leaders, healers, and well-respected in their communities. And this was shared across other cultures, different cultures too. The enforcing of a two-gender system and various forms of criminalization, including of same-gender partners, led to continuous abuse and discrimination faced especially by women, queer and gender-fluid people. Many indigenous societies have a history of gender spectrums, but this was obscured and a culture of shame was built up around it. Creating a gender binary allowed for the settler colonial processes where indigenous women were used as a commodity to gain access to land and have been sexualized, raped, and exploited. Stonewall has written about the link between British colonialism and countries with anti-LGBTQIA plus colonialism laws, explaining that there is a direct correlation between countries which belong to the Commonwealth and therefore have previously been under British rule and countries that still have homophobic, biphobic, and or transphobic legislature in their constitutions. They also added, colonization and the spread of fundamentalist Christian attitudes from the British meant that much of Africa lost its previous cultural attitude toward sexual orientation and gender identity and were forced to adopt new values from British colonizers in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm looking forward to reading Alok's book. It's Beyond the Gender Binary. And I will follow up and let you know what else they have to say. I do want to say thanks again for your question. And to all of you who have been listening, it really means a lot to me. So thanks very much for taking a little time out of your day to just join the conversation, whether you write in or not. I appreciate all of you. Today we're discussing Who Are You Really? A look into genealogy and DNA testing. But that sound means that it's time for the breakdown. Can we stop normalizing family as a compliment? In my family, here was a group of people who had carte blanche to judge and dismiss me. People who think that when they are hurt or frustrated, it's okay to lash out at pretty much anyone and pretend that it never happened. A group of people who did not have the tools to manage when someone is accused of abuse who normalize victim-shaming, victim-denying, and who do not believe in human rights for all people. If you're hearing this and we're related, I probably blocked your number. But blood is thicker than water. A lot of people take that out of context. The full quote, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. 
It's complicated, but there are people who are related to me that I have cut off for good reason and had other people say to me, oh, isn't it time to let that go? It's family. Just because someone is related to me does not give them agency to be toxic and still have me in their lives. It's a survival thing, and I do not apologize for it. I had someone say to me, it's so nice to have you as part of the family. This was somebody who's not related to me. And they said this not knowing my stance, and I was horrified. I think, oh, family. People who think they can get away with being toxic. Hard pass. Anyway, I do know that that sounds harsh, and without getting into all the details, I'll say again, my family is very much the inspiration for the Flowers in the Attic psychodrama. So if that is your situation, I feel like I just want to make space for it being okay to cut off ties with those people. That's all. Speaking of family, (laughs) who are you really? A look into genealogy and DNA testing. I caught the bug on genealogy when I was trying to find my father and his family. I did not get very far on that side, but I was able to trace my mother's family's uh, ancestry back to the early 1600s, which I thought was kind of cool. I know a lot of people actually don't know this, but I, um, well, this part you might know that I grew up in a trailer park in the Midwest. Talk about your humble beginnings. And I remember my father fondly, although I was only five the last time I saw him. But as I got older, I had questions and I was curious to see if there were any mysteries that could be uncovered in the ancestry records. Now, I didn't know much, but I did know that he was a driver for a small computer company called Apple and that he was Mexican. Pretty much all I knew. I mean, I had his name. (laughs) So anyway, if he if that were true, then he would have had to have applied for a social security uh, number, and he would have had to have a driver's license somewhere in the states. So if I was able to figure out his social security number, which would have been fantastic if I had that, but I did not. That would help to determine if some of the records that I found online were actually pertinent to him or not. So I went to the Social Security Administration and paid a fee. I think it was about $30. It wasn't a lot of money. And I requested a copy of the application when he applied for a Social Security number. And then I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally, I got a little package of information in the mail from the Social Security Administration Unfortunately, when I got the records, all of the information that would have been helpful had been redacted, like where his parents were from, for example. I did find dozens and dozens of other records, but my Spanish is better suited to tourism than understanding government records. So that was when I turned to Ancestry.com and I bought one of their DNA tests. I did want to mention when this first idea came to my awareness, it was cost prohibitive, to me. But now most of the tests are under $100, which I realize is still a lot of money, especially with the rising cost of everything else. But if you if you just pay attention, eventually they do have sales. So um, I just happened to go and check to, um, pr- to prepare to record today's episode. And there's currently a promotion where you can get, I guess I didn't write down the exact test, 
but one of the the DNA test kits, it must be it must be the mtDNA kit, is fifty nine dollars. And that's probably the lowest that I've seen it. I certainly paid a lot more than that. And then for one dollar more, you can add on the World Explorer membership. I should say I'm not sponsored and I'm not selling anything. But when I had when I had that World Explorer membership, the value in this case, it cost a dollar. I didn't read the fine print like to know like how long that's good for. Um, but for example, when I was researching my mother's father's lineage, they were mostly from England. So with that membership, I could cross check their records, like um, census records. And um, in this case, because they were in English, I mean, I reviewed the records from Mexico as well, but it was less helpful because I wasn't as sure of my Spanish. Now, before I, um, <laughs> before I committed to taking the test, I did have some hesitation because I wasn't certain how much of my information would be disclosed. And I'm aware of the murmurs of people who say that you're giving up too much by willingly entering your DNA into the database. But for myself, I wanted any information I could get. And if I was surrendering something, I was okay with that. I mean, it's not really like you have that much agency over your own information anymore anyway. I am definitely interested in hearing from people who have you know, some opposition to it, whether it be about the exposing the information or I should say disclosing the information or exactly what the opposition is. I mean, it's too late for me, but I'm curious to know if people have any uh, hesitation. And I feel like, (laughs) I feel like probably the hesitation that many people may have is uh, not being able to deny the truth, right? Because it's 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 literally empirical evidence. <laughs> the really fun fact is that once I got my matches, uh, I reached out and sent emails to people who were like second, third cousins was the most distant. Figuring anything more remote would require a deeper tree to see where it intersected, if that makes sense. Now, I have no idea about DNA or how to read the results, but one of the people who showed up as a match happened to be a doctor. And so I must have had a setting to where they could access my um, the data collected from from the from the test. So so there are like a, a couple there are actually a, a bunch of different companies that I that I know of. So there's ancestry.com, 23andme is probably one that's I feel like it's been making the rounds on uh like advertising most recently other than the genome project and ftdna, family tree dna. So they you you submit your um I guess it's a spit sample, right? And they analyze the data and they com- they uh, compile a report for you. And most people are going to be looking at the the report, right? Like they're not going to go looking at like the, the raw genetic data. But anyway, so part of what they all tend to do is part of that analysis is a summary of, um, and it's shown with on a map of the world, with a chart and it indicates how much of your DNA by percentage originates in what specific location. It's all color coded. So anyway, so I had sent my results um, along to this cousin of mine to try and see if we could triangulate where our trees crossed. Uh, 
And my brain kind of exploded because he pointed out some of my very particular personal genetic anomalies that I still haven't gotten interpreted for me directly by my doctor, but that's coming soon. We'll be able to talk about that soon. I have an older half-brother, and we have known all of our lives that we were halves. And he got also, he also got tested. And when he got his results in that summary analysis, he was really perplexed because he had a certain expectation about what we would have in common. And I at least knew, you know, a lot of people will say, like in my case, um, my father was Mexican and my mother was uh, British and Azorian. So a lot of people would take that and say, oh, then I'm half um, British or I'm half Mexican and maybe a quarter Azorian and a quarter British. But it actually doesn't work that way. So say two siblings each have the same two parents, the amount of DNA each gets from each parent is a roll of the dice every time conception happens. So to say that you're half of each parent isn't really a factual representation. Have you, Has everybody seen a family where all of the children, let's say there's three or four children, all look like clones of one of the parents, but nothing like the other? You might conclude that those children all have more genetic information from the parent that they more closely resemble, but even that isn't always the truth because they may actually have a good percentage of DNA from that quote-unquote recessive parent. Anyway, many years later, my sister, assumed to be my full sister, also took a DNA test and her results concluded that we shared a maternal parent only, much to everyone's surprise. And I can't say for sure, but I feel like our relationship is different or like was different since then. And I do think that there are other contributing factors, but we are estranged. And I think that it's partly because she found out that we're not as related as she thought we were. I don't know that for a fact, but I suspect. In the meantime, last time we were talking about homesteading and I was living with my mother's parents, my grandparents on their family estate. And my grandfather was failing very quickly, but he loved to talk about his relatives from the old country. So he was from England. So the old country was England, apparently. So I kept a notebook, a journal, I guess, and I wrote down pretty much everything he said, the names of family members, how they were related, those kinds of things. And that was incredibly useful because I was also able to take that information and triangulate a lot of his ancestors, utilizing, like I said, public records, census records, newspaper records, birth, death, and marriage announcements, those kinds of things. Now, at one point I did contact a genealogist because I'm still very interested in seeing how complete my research into my father's side could be. And this was a number of years ago now, but it was $2,500 to just start the clock with no real projection of how much more it could be, but that was almost like a retainer. And I'm not saying that there it's not a value, but to be fully transparent, if I had a spare $2,500, which I do not, I can think of a lot of other uses that would do a lot more for a lot more people than that. Personally, that's just where I stand. A few years later, I took a different test that came on the market. I don't recall exactly the distinction between the first one and the second one, 
And I did look at the result, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out which, which tests I had taken, but either way, ancestry and NFT DNA, like I said, both give you kind of similar reporting. One part is this map of the world with a chart and it's color coded to indicate the geographic region. That was the origin um, of what percentage of your DNA. One of the interesting things about that, my, my, my mother's father we talked about was from England and the report confirmed, uh, the United Kingdom as an origin. My mother's mother was from the Azores, which we knew to be true. But the test revealed that none, none of my DNA or originated in the Azores. Which does make perfect sense because like if you're French, but you happen to have your baby in Italy, your baby may be Italian, but the DNA test will <laughs> indicate otherwise, right? I was also very excited to see that on the FTDNA website, you can now see which parent contributed which gene influence. So you can like click on an area of geography where you have an origin and it will light up uh, the corresponding percentage, whether it be parent A or parent B. And in my case, because I knew that my father was Mexican and my mother was Azorian and British, it was easy to determine which parent was parent A. And here's where it gets really interesting. I knew that my mother was a combination of British and Portuguese, but when I clicked around, my Portuguese influence lit up on my father's side, which further explained why my half-brother was so concerned because he thought we should have more similarities in that specific uh, gene representation of Portugal. But I just found it interesting that my mother was partly Portuguese, but my personal Portuguese influence came through on my father's side, which also wasn't much of a surprise um, because not unlike America, Mexico is populated by people from all over the world. We know from history that a lot of Spanish people colonized in Mexico, and we know that Mexico had a native, had native ancient populations of people, the Aztecs and the Mayans. And obviously some of those people drifted up into the Southwest United States and beyond. And some people from South America and Central America drifted north into Mexico. So while I was thought that my father was Mexican, and he was, but in him existed influences also from North Africa, Basque, and the Middle East, which also surprised me. And I know I keep saying this, but obviously I'm a big fat dork ball. Anyway, what I find interesting is the disparity between the results from the two different, uh, not tests, but from the two different... Uh, websites. There's overlap for sure, but Ancestry reports that 27% of my DNA originates in Spain, 23% England, and 12% Indigenous Americas, 10% Portugal, 6% Basque. While the FTDNA analyzes that information to be 88% European, which isn't far off, but it's off, for, you know, from, from the ancestry report, mostly of the, uh, Iberian peninsula. So Spain and Portugal, right. And England, but only 10% indigenous Americas. Like I said, it's not far off, but it is interesting. Like how are they using the same exact information to arrive at different results? And of course there is, there is some guesstimation maybe. I don't know if that's the word and I don't know enough about how it's actually done, but that would be interesting if anybody knows how that works and how accurate 
the reporting is that I would love to hear about that. And if I ever do get to speak with a genealogist, I would definitely want to ask. There is a, a Y test now and it's for, it has to do with your paternal ancestry line. So it kind of seems like for me, that would be good. I forget why it has a greater advantage, but it also has a greater price tag. Right now they're, they're rocking out at $499. And again, I cannot justify spending money, that much money on something that I'm interested in, but ultimately won't add to the value of my life, right? It does seem that at least in my case, you'd need to be able to go back further generations to find out where most of your matches connect. For example, it may list a match for someone who is probably a fourth cousin. And let me just say this too. So I have a half sibling brother and a half sibling sister, right? On the analysis of of the matches it shows my sister as a half sibling like that is their calculated guess of of how we're related and the the assessment for the how my brother my half brother and I are related says uncle and I guess like at that far removed, like it's not uncommon for those familial relationships to look the same, like in, in the number of traits that are f- showing up in both people. But yeah, anyway, back to the other point that I have started pinpointing. So let's say you have a match who's, um, let's say just a fourth cousin. In order to pinpoint that connection, you'd be able, you'd have to be able to trace it back probably six, eight, maybe as many as 10 generations. And that makes sense. If someone is your first cousin, you don't have to think about it. You can, you only have to go back one, maybe two generations to pinpoint how they're connected. And I'm guessing that most people would be able to do that without DNA analysis. Not everyone, obviously, but probably most people. There is more that you can do with your DNA though. And that has to do with the genome project. I really don't know much about this. In fact, what I knew about it, more of what I knew about it came from whatever story arc on Grey's Anatomy, where that was what (laughs) Bailey was trying to get uh, research funding for genome mapping. So this is related. So if you have taken the DNA test, you can upload the raw data to the genome project. And then we'll give you, it's a little bit gimmicky in this way, but they'll give you a, a similar report, but it goes into more depth. Like, you know, you're, there's this percentage of a chance that you, these are your personality traits. And there's this percentage of a chance that these are your physical like habits, uh, like whether you're physical or active, um, diet things, you're most most likely to be deficient in this vitamin. Like it goes more de- deeply into those things. But, you know, I did take a quick look at the summary from those findings and I kind of felt like that's a little bit like throwing spaghetti at a wall. And like, fortunately, I know enough about my own situation that I know that I'd take a B12 supplement and, you know, that I need to get some sunlight, but not too much. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like soup. It was interesting, I guess. Um, But I think what it can contribute to research is 
you know, worth it personally. But if you don't agree, that's perfectly fine. I would love to hear why. I'm always interested in hearing, not necessarily from people who agree with me, because that's not really interesting. It's nice to have people that agree with you, but it's not really something you can talk about. But when when somebody has a different viewpoint than I do, I like it when both sides are able to express themselves without trying to change the other person's mind, just saying, this is these are the reasons why I think this thing. And that way I can take that on and and try that on and say, I agree with that. Maybe I'm going to change my mind or say, yeah, I'm still going to stick with where I stand, but thanks for sharing. Like, at least we now know, you know, and, and at least we now have the benefit of knowing some more information that, you know, supports where we stand. There's always a value in that. If you do have any objection or if you have a DNA story that you want to share, again, you can do it completely anonymously um, or not. Totally up to you. But we definitely want to hear from you. The best way to do that for us is to go over to the Discord server. But of course, (laughs) you can find all my social links at seraphimpenumbra.com. As always, let's keep the conversation alive. And remember, it's only a conversation when ideas are exchanged. So please do head over to our Discord and weigh in. If you're interested in in finding a way to support my content, you can buy me a coffee or you can get yourself a t-shirt or someone that you love, a sticker. We have postcards. We actually just put up some original art so you could get a print or have that printed on a postcard. Next time we're discussing a spotlight on Providence, we'll be talking about some of my favorite places, places that I think make Providence fabulous and progressive and inclusive. Thanks for stopping by Cafe Penumbra. I'm your host, Seraphim Penumbra, wishing you a jolly new now. 